we are so blessed to live in the times of the fulfillment of the new covenant. Uh, Many of God's people lived before the fulfillment of the new covenant, but God was gracious to them uh, to give them uh, view of the new things were to come. And our call to worship this morning, which I'm going to read again from Isaiah 43, is one of those uh, demonstrations of the work of the Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah, through the Old Testament, to show the good things that are to come that we are actually living in in person. Isaiah 43, 18 through 21. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise." You ever been to a desert? Deserts are vast, almost featureless, and dry. It is a wonderful description of life apart from Jesus Christ. And we live in this fallen world. And this world, as beautiful as it can be sometimes, is a desert world. But what does God do? He brings rivers in the midst of all of that arid desolation. And in those rivers, he brings life. Well, that's going to be something of the theme that we're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 17, as Paul speaks of this wonderful new ministry that we are allowed to be participants in and proclaimers of. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would bless us through the revealing of his word to us. Father, we do look to you, God, and we thank you. Uh, Lord, I don't know that we could have had the faith of an Isaiah, of a Jeremiah, of Ezekiel, of a David. Our faith lags so much, and we can look back on the historical fact of a risen Christ. They had to look at the, shot, the types and the shadows and the, uh, the outline of something that was to come. So we thank you for those who have gone before God, and we thank you for Christ Jesus, who made all things new. Help us to be found faithful, God. As we learned two weeks ago, Lord, we will all stand before you. At the end, when we pass, when that death dew lies on our brow, as we just sang, we will stand before you, and we will be rewarded based on our faithfulness, not on our success, not on our looks, not on how articulate we are, but on our faithfulness. Help us to be proclaimers of this ministry of the new, and help us to be found faithful. Embolden us with your word this morning, in Christ's name, amen. Please do turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 17. Uh, again, the Apostle Paul is writing his, uh, to the Corinthian church. He wrote four letters uh, to the Corinthians. Uh, we have two of them. And I'm going to read in its entirety, and you will, m- might be uh, aided in your home group helps insert that shows you kind of how we're going to break down this, uh, this verse into three different uh, sections there. Here now the word of the Lord. God says, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are not made manifest to God. I'm sorry, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that you are made manifest also in your consciences. 
We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For, we are, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. What a wonderful text for a new year, isn't it? A new beginning and being able to focus upon the things the Lord has done for us. Again, we're going to look at three different sections of this. We see a new fear in verses 11 through 3, a new love in verses 14 through 15, and a new creation in verses 16 through uh, 17 here. Uh, And one of the things to kind of keep in mind again in 2 Corinthians is really a defense of Paul's ministry. And, And Paul feels this compelling desire to defend his ministry and indeed this compelling need to defend his ministry because Paul is under attack in Corinth and he's under attack by false teachers and if Paul is discredited what Paul says is discredited which means the word of God is discredited the ministry of the apostles is discredited and the church will become just another cult in the ancient world. So he has to fight for a defense about what it is that he has taught because of the false teachers coming in. If Paul goes down, the gospel goes down in this early part of the church here. So he goes that. Now remember, this passage starts with therefore. You always should ask, where's the therefore? Therefore, if you go back to verse 10, we read this. But we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed or compensated for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad. Go to the sermon two weeks ago on Sermon Audio on our YouTube channel. Listen to what that means for the Christian. That is for Christians. There is an accountability for Christians. We will all stand not for judgment. Our sin has already been judged on the cross of Jesus Christ. But for reward, we will stand before the Lord. You will give an account of faithfulness. How faithful were you in this life with what God gave you to do? And that's a sobering and yet also an exciting principle of Holy Scripture. With that in mind, Paul says, then what do we do this? We know the fear of God. Now, again, the fear of God here uh, when in, in, for a Christian is uh, reverence and awe, respect him, uh, and it results in worship, adoration, and service. It's not a terrifying fear. It's not the kind of fear that the, the world has. Now, for example, we see in the book of Acts in chapter 9, Uh, There's a statement there from Dr. Luke. The church throughout all Judea and and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. They had peace. Being built up and going in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So if the fear of the Lord was the terrifying kind of fear, you wouldn't have peace and comfort. Okay? So it's appropriate for Christians to have a certain fear of the Lord. One of our favorite texts, this has been a text that's been on the bull, every bulletin, as I recall, since this church began some 15 years ago, uh, from Hebrews chapter 12. It's a reminder of the new covenant, the new covenant that we're under. 
The author of Hebrews reminds the, the Hebrews that you have not come, I'm looking at uh, Hebrews 12, 18 through 24, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched to a blazing fire and to darkness and the gloom and the whirlwind and the blast of the trumpet and the sound of words, which the sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to him. What's he describing here? He's describing Sinai, right? Sinai with a fire on top and the giving of the law and God was speaking directly and it terrified the people so much they said, we don't want God to speak to us, we want Moses to speak to us. I mean, uh, if an animal touched that mountain, he was to be uh, killed. For they will not bear command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Even holy Moses was terrified. But here's the transition. That's not what you do. That's not what we do on Sundays. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all things, to the saints of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Our God is incredibly approachable. Unlike that mountain, unlike the law, the new covenant brings in grace. And we fear God in reverence, but we fear him as our loving daddy. And because of that knowledge, what does Paul do? We persuade men. This, this holy fear motivates Paul's ministry. He just can't keep uh, this wonderful truth to himself. He's got to go tell the gospel to other people because he knows he's going to stand before God. How did he spend his life? He spent his life in persuading men. Now, Paul, when he says persuade, sometimes that could have bad connotations, like a sales pitch or perhaps he's manipulating or something like that. Paul, of course, is very much against that style of sophistry and, and the style of the philosophers of old. Uh, he even uh, criticized it in 1 Corinthians and speaking to the Corinthians chapter 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. Paul did everything he could to diminish himself and glorify God. That's the kind of church you want to go to. No, no, there's, uh, if, it's an unhealthy church that has a superstar celebrity pastor. Now, it's not that you couldn't be highly gifted and still proclaim the truth of God, but that's a, there's just an awful lot of celebrity pastors out there. And it's very difficult to stay humble in a situation like that. In so many ways, that's one reason, by the way, that I wear a Genevan gown. Um, you know, it's funny. People say, I mean, some of you students, y'all come in here today and they say, oh, that church, that's so formal. You know, everybody's in suit and ties and everything. I'm counting like three ties today in the whole church. But one reason why I wear this, this gown is it's intended to diminish my presence. So you hear my voice. You hear the things that we're preaching. That's the point of the message. It's not me. I'm just kind of trying to hide me a little bit. That's one of the purposes of a Genevan gown. 
So we are, we are made manifest to God. He goes, God already knows who we are here. He doesn't have to fend himself with God. Uh, and, but he's, and he's confident that the Lord knows who he is, the Lord, that he walks in his integrity. Folks, you need to have this kind of confidence. Paul could preach the gospel because he was confident in his calling and confident in his obedience. Now, he failed just like we all fail. But, but he, he wasn't constantly, all of his prayers weren't, end up, weren't confessions, you know. He, he walked with a holy confidence before the Lord. And he says, I'm before the Lord. And, and because we're under grace, we can do the same thing. He says he also hopes that they be manifest in your conscience. You know, Paul spent a year and a half with these people. And it's not like, you know, these were smaller communities. They did everything together. They shopped at the same places. They worshiped at the same places. They didn't have multiple churches. They knew Paul. And he said, listen, we were manifested to you. We were before you. We revealed ourselves. We walked in front of you. And it's a, it's a little hurtful, to be honest with you, from Paul's standpoint. He has to defend himself after being with these people as long as he was. And he feels like he's, he kind of has to defend himself. And yet he also says here, uh, we are not again committing ourselves uh, to you. Uh, he, 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 but he's given them a reason to be proud with them. You know, uh, he has told the Corinthians several times, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, there's a, there's a lot of pride in ministry, and you have to be very careful with that pride. Pride is generally a, a, a bad term, but when it comes to spiritual things, it's perfectly appropriate for you to be proud. You have kind of a settled confidence in what you're doing is right when you're walking in the Spirit and when you're following through on uh, what Christ says. So it's not for fame, not for eloquence, not for education, that the popularity of the leader matters, it's his heart. These men were ordained today not because they were the best-looking men of the church, not because they were the richest men in the church, but because they're men that, that are pursuing the Lord with, with all their hearts. As they would tell you, they're very flawed men. Their families are flawed families, just like all of us are. But they're moving in the right direction. They're moving in the right direction. So that, and then he goes on, he says, so we have an answer for those who take pride in appearance. Again, the value is not on the exterior. This is the, one of the dangerous things about Instagram and TikTok and all the other things, uh, Facebook. Everything's about appearance, right? I mean, how do, it, it kind of has to be. It's all photographs. So, and what happens is we are sort of trained that if someone is handsome, they must also be intelligent. And if they're intelligent, they may also uh, be, uh, have a lot of money. And we have this kind of image of what the ideal person is like out there. But let me say, I've known some Instagram stars, and a lot of them are very insecure people, right? And there's a lot of us who don't feel like we want to go out there and just show everybody how handsome we are, and that's probably for the good because that's not what really matters. And for some of us who've been around for a while, you know, you could be very handsome at age 20 and not so much at age 70. Have y'all seen the, um, the book of Boba Fett? Started that yet? There's a point to this. Stop laughing. There's a point. All right. The, all right, book of Boba Fett. You know, Boba Fett's a Star Wars character. Now I'm regretting even starting this. But anyway, there's actually a documentary on Boba Fett also on uh, the Disney Channel. 
And it, they're interviewing George Lucas. The first Star Wars came out 40 years ago. How do you, old do you feel now? Uh, and there's this young, strapping, fit George Lucas on scenes, you know, directing Star Wars. Now they're interviewing him about Boba Fett. 40 years later, he's got this big old George Lucas belly, and he's all gray and everything. You know, that's going to happen to every one of you. <laughs> so learn not to put all of your trust in appearance. That's just not God's way. And this is the problem. You know, the part of the problem with Paul, too, is because Paul was a servant leader. He wasn't acting like everybody else. He wasn't, af- uh, he wasn't after trying to get attention for himself, trying to promote his own political agenda, trying to get rich. They thought there was something wrong with him. The, 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 the false teachers actually used his piety, his humility, his desire for glorifying God instead of himself uh, against him. You know, this, we'll get those kind of accusations at this church. This church is consumed with glorifying God and not man. And people will just think that's weird. It's just weird. Why would you do that? Because that's actually how you're going to be most satisfied. That's actually what the Bible says is, is, is a worship, okay? And Paul goes on here. So he says here, uh, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are sound-minded, it's for you. This idea of beside themselves means to be outside of oneself, outside of one's mind. In other words, they were saying, uh, Paul's crazy. And Paul says, if we're crazy, it's for God. We're God crazy. We're Bible crazy. That's the kind of crazy. And the world will think you're crazy when you take seriously the things of God. You know, it's just, uh, but the, he's, he's, he's really railing here against here about those who put, as he says here, uh, the idea, they, they put their hope in appearance. That idea of appearance is literally in the face of, not at the heart. Now, this is another Old Testament principle, isn't it? Remember what Samuel said when they were deciding that all of David's brothers should have been the king? He says, but God looks at the heart. We look at the outward appearance. And how many times do we have to learn that lesson over and over and over again? It's almost embarrassing, isn't it? I remember... Uh, Back when I, when I first finished Clemson, uh, I wanted to go help plant a church in Columbia, so I took a job with Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company. I sold life insurance. And Northwestern was in this huge ramp-up of hiring college grads. There's a 90% turnover rate in life insurance salesmen for the first year. Okay? So you hire bunches of them with the hope that you'll have one or two at the end of a year. So we're up there in Charlotte in this big agency, and we're all up there, and we're wearing, you know, uh, we're all in suits and overcoats and stuff like that. And there's a, I, there's like 25 new agents that have just been hired, and we're all sizing each other up. You know how men do, you know, you kind of sizing each other up, you know. And I'm, I'm like leaning against the door with my hand in my pocket, you know, sizing everybody up. And we're all like, who's going to make it? Who's not going to make it? Because they told us up front, you know, only one of ten are going to be here. Who's going to make the big money? Who's going to be the success? And you're, you're, you're looking around. And I had my money on the really good-looking Mormon guy. Uh, all Mormons are good-looking. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, and uh, that's not doctrine. That's just my opinion. Uh, so I look at this, this good-looking, you know, six-foot-something or another. Anything over six foot is amazing to me. Uh, and he was just, you know, he just had that chiseled kind of dent chin and He's over there looking like this. I thought, that guy, he's a shoe. He's, that guy's going to be the big money mover. And then I'm looking around the room, and then I look at this guy. He ain't got a chance. He's kind of a nerdy redneck, you know? You, you know who ended up making the money and staying in the business? The nerdy redneck. The Mormon guy was out in a few months with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the point is, don't judge based on appearance, right? Okay? So we are besides myself. So uh, 
Paul was being persecuted for being the same kind of man God expected him to be. You will be too. You will be too. They will make fun of you for being a serious Christian. You just take this stuff too seriously. I don't know that we do. I mean, I certainly don't think we go beyond what God would have us go beyond. Paul was accused uh, of being out of his mind uh, uh, with Festus. You know, you're out of your mind. And Paul says, well, if I am, it's for the Lord. Now we see here a new love. And this is a wonderful transition. And, you know, this is absolutely important because you have got to combat this spirit of legalism that resides within you and is preached in numerous churches. And the spirit of legalism sounds something like this. Just try harder. Try harder. And let me, let me kind of explain what I mean here. So we go on here with a new love in verse 14 through 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now there's a memory verse, isn't it? Here's your calling. Here's your principle of life, your key purpose statement for your life. But it starts off, notice how Paul starts off. He wants to make sure it's not the law that controls you, it's the love of Christ that controls. Paul's fear of Christ motivated him to persuade men, and now Paul is emphasizing that Christ's love for Paul completes this motivation. It's the power behind the motivation. That idea of controls describes the pressure that produces action. Love is a controlling force. It needs to be the primary controlling force of you individually and this as a church. And again, this is, you will hear this for the new prosperity churches that are out there. It, you know, it's, it's God just wants you to be all the you you can be. And it's just, it's soccer mom theology. He wants you to be thinner and richer and more successful and blah, 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 blah. And well, but I'm having a hard time doing that. Just try harder. Just try harder. That is, there's no hope in that. (laughs) How many times have you tried harder? Now, I'm not saying obedience is not effortless. It takes, it takes your entire life to be obedient. But if you miss this secret, this controlling force of the love of Christ, you're going to miss it all. You will be exhausted with the burden of legalism. Why should you try harder? Why should you repent? Why should you seek to overcome those sins? Because of the love of Christ. I just love Jesus. And he loved me enough to die for me. That's enough. And I think you're going to see a power you may not have had before if you would join with the Apostle Paul. It motivated him to reach the entire Europe, continent of Europe with the gospel. And he goes on and explains about how, how, how this can happen, that, uh, that having concluded this, one died for all, therefore all died. Uh, he, he died for the benefit of, uh, of us. He's speaking here about the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, which is probably one of the most attacked doctrines in the church today. Liberal churches hate the doctrine of substitutionary atonement because if you embrace that doctrine, you've got to confess that you're a sinner. And they just don't like doing that. And you've got to confess there's this God out there, you know. It's not all social justice. There's something, some cosmic something that was broken that required the death of the Son of God. Liberals call it cosmic child abuse when you speak of the substitutionary atonement. 
That's a hill to die on for every one of us. One died for all, therefore all died here. The all here, obviously, he's talking about Christians. He's not teaching universalism. Universalists, that all dogs go to heaven. They'll take this verse and they'll, they'll wrap it around and they'll say, see, he says all go to But he's obviously, the context is Christians. He's talking to the Corinthian church here. But this is not a new doctrine. Again, we go back to Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has gone, turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Have you read Isaiah 53 lately? It looks like an eyewitness journalistic account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, written 600 years before Christ. That's substitutionary atonement. And we praise God. If it's cosmic child abuse, praise God for it, because we'd all be doomed if it wasn't. The Old Testament, God accepted those sacrifices. But think about this. If God accepted the sacrifice of a sheep for the sins of people, how much more would he accept the sacrifice of his very own perfect son. I just don't think y'all enjoy salvation the way you should. I think you're just afraid to rejoice and to embrace embrace the the grace that you're under. But he died for your sins. And what's going to be the result? So that result, they might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Love demands a response every time. Love demands a response, and our response is to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died. Again, you know, my testimony is uh, I got saved my sophomore year, very beginning of my sophomore year at Clemson, and I was just a C student party guy. And you almost really, if you, if you graphed my grade point average, you could almost tell when I got saved. Not completely, because there were some math courses in there, but uh, <laughs> and there's just a limit to what the kid can do when it comes to mathematics. Uh, and uh, but you really you could t- you could almost see it because what happened is it dawned on me. Wait a minute, I'm a Christian now. I don't live for myself. I don't live for Saturday night. I'm actually living for God. It's probably be a better example to make A's than D's. Now this. I know that's not rocket science, but for me, that was a big leap, you know. I'd kind of gotten through life on C's, you know. And I just started studying, and I started making A's. A's are fun. You don't feel so stupid when you walk in. And, you know, you get the little A back, and, you, you know, your GPA, and the dean starts writing you letters and stuff like that. And by the time my last semester, you know, I, you could tell. That's the power of love. You take this C student, this sweat hog, and turn him into a guy on the dean's list, that's God, y'all. And the same kind of thing can happen to every single one of you in whatever form it needs to happen. It's really a miracle, isn't it? It's the power of the new. It's the power of the new. I mean, my, I get together sometimes. We have a, a high school reunion group called our mascot in high school was the Skyhawks. We call ourselves the Greyhawks, and uh, the Greyhawks get together, and they sort of stare at me like, we, we, we just can't believe you're a pastor, and that 
you of all of us have a doctorate degree. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, Mrs. Smith, my sixth grade teacher, is like rolling over in her grave. I you know, couldn't spell. Uh, well, let's just move on from there. <laughs> but he died and he rose again on our behalf here. He was telling uh, 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 the Galatians, you know, when he was making his defense with that church, as Paul's always having to defend himself. But he says here, But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I'm telling you, you know what? Paul is probably the greatest Christian ever, the most obedient Christian ever, and that make him, made him the freest man ever to live on planet Earth besides Jesus Christ. He was not shackled by sin. He was not, you know, with, with the winds of change. He wasn't consumed by the culture. He wasn't consumed with fads. He really didn't care what other people thought. <laughs> he just cared about serving God and serving the church. You know how free that made him? How confident that made him? Most of our problem is we're trying to straddle between the world and heaven. And you just weren't called to do that. You were called to forget the world. Now, that, I don't mean that you are supposed to go walk around in burlap, you know, or something like that. You know, you, just, you, know, you, you need to fit in. Uh, but it's exhausting. Folks, let me help you. Just give up the world. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find you actually get a lot more of the world than you thought you could. I think Paul had a, with all of his beatings and everything, I think he had the best life anybody ever lived because he was so freed up because of this new love. And now we see here a new creation here, verses 16 through 17. We recognize no one according to the flesh, okay? In other words, our value and our assessment of people is always based, is often based on the external. We need to go deeper. And you know, to go deeper on how to evaluate somebody, you've got to get to know them. You've got to look them in the eye. You've got to listen to them. So we're not just writing people off because they don't look like us. We don't value them according to the flesh. Uh, and, and now, uh, even though now we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we no longer know him this way. You think about Paul. Paul thinks about, Paul is remembering, I think, when he's recounting what he used to think of when he thought about Jesus. He just talked about the, the, the substitutionary atonement, the, 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 the power of the love of Christ. But I think he's kind of going back in time, back in the days when he was known as Saul of Tarsus. What did Saul of Tarsus think of Jesus? He hated Jesus. Jesus was a blasphemer, an arch heretic, a scoundrel. He claimed to be the son of God. We're going to get him. Well, we can't get him. The Romans already got him, which was proof that he was a fraud. Romans wouldn't have crucified somebody uh, innocent. Cursed is every man who hangs on the tree. So we're going to go after his people. We're going to make them squeal. We're going to kill them. We're going to take away their property. That was his opinion. And then what happened on the road to Damascus? He realized he was fighting on the wrong side. He was fighting for the devil, not for God. So he kind of learned not to judge people based on the flesh. He learned it the hard way too, didn't he? The irony is that people are now treating Paul the way he treated Christians, and I don't think that's lost on him either. And then, of course, this wonderful... Was this one of the first verses you ever memorized when you made a Christian? Because we're... 
we're just so prone to, 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 to live the way we used to live. There's a new expectation here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, right? There's a qualifier here. He's talking about being in Christ. He's talking about Christians. Now, Ken, here's another doctrine for you. The doctrine is union with Christ. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. We are wed to Jesus Christ. Union of Christ speaks of the love, security, acceptance, forgiveness, assurance of salvation, and your inheritance in heaven. If you are in Christ, you are a new creature. That idea of new doesn't mean just new in sequence, but new in quality. You've laid aside the old self. You put on the new self, Ephesians 4, Colossians chapter 3. This is your biography. You're a new creature. You know, if you want to have a church resume, you can just have your name up there and your email address and everything and just say new creature, new creature. And the cool thing about that is it never gets old. So you're a new creature from the way you were 10 years ago, but you also will be a new creature tomorrow from the way you were today. Isn't it amazing how we give up on ourselves so quickly and God never gives up on us? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit that resides within us, he's got a plan for us. You know what's beautiful about this too? There's actually not a verb in that passage. So if you read it literally from the Greek, it is therefore if any, anyone is in Christ, new creature. If anyone's in Christ, new creature. Bang! You are a new creature. And he defines that. What does that mean? The old things have passed away. Behold, behold, new things have come. New values, plans, loves, desires. New allegiances, new loyalties. I never would have dreamed that I liked church. To church, growing up, the church I grew up in, I was an acolyte and a flag bearer, and I was always, well, I'm nervous now, but I was always nervous, you know, there was always these things you had to do all the time, and I didn't, we never read scripture, I don't remember scripture, and, uh, um, and again, I, you know, confessional, I cheated on my confirmation exam, so I didn't learn it when I was supposed to learn it. Um, I really am a new creature, <laughs> I hope, uh, I mean, usually, I mean, I am. Anyway, uh, I, I, I didn't like church. I thought, why would anybody want to go to church when you can sleep, <laughs> you know? Wow. The fact that y'all are here today is proof that you're a new creature, a new creation. The new lasts forever. It never gets old. And this new covenant brings the new creation Again, going back to Jeremiah, the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. On their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. I'm, I often think about the sins you just confessed, the sins I just confessed. And um, here's a little tip for you. Don't bring them up again to God. Because in a sense, what he's going to say is, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember. Well, really, I mean, I blasphemed. Really? I mean, I gossiped. I mean, really, I lusted. You know, I just wasted half a day yesterday in sin. Well, you don't remember that? No, no I remember your sin no more. It's nailed to the cross. You need to confess it. I love that also, going back to the Old Testament, it speaks of the new, this amazing passage from Ezekiel. Ezekiel is, uh, I was told my students this week, Ezekiel is kind of like one of those mushroom trips from the 1960s, and they said, how do you know? They got awkward. I mean, it's like, I don't, I, 
that I read about. I mean, I really did. Anyway, and and it got awkward again. I don't know why I keep bringing up that illustration. But but Ezekiel has these amazing visions. And and there's none greater than Ezekiel 37. And this is you. This is a description of the church of Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down the middle of a valley. And it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass along them round and about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. And again he said to me, Prophesy, preach. Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. He's persuading men. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you to come to life, and I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with, with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied that it was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bones. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, and they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army, and I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life. That army? Those dead bones, those dead people made alive is you. You are part of that army. You are. All things have become new. You're a new creation. So the question goes then, what does the commander of the army command you to do? And Paul answers it, answered it earlier along in the sermon. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Father, I pray that you would help us to be just overwhelmed with the love of Christ, motivated that that wonderful thing that you have done in our lives would be done in other lives around us, and help us to have the strength and the wisdom to persuade men, not to manipulate them, not to trick them, not to entertain them, but just give them the gospel and leave the conversion up to you. Use us, Lord. What good is an army that just stands there? You have created an army out of dry bones. You have filled us with the Spirit. You have given us your orders. Help us to go into battle, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.